Morning. As it's been said, this is my first time preaching, so yeah. <laughs> and I've been given an open topic to speak on. So in, when the slides come up, I thought I'd choose a nice easy subject to cover. So I'm going to look at why we should fear God. It's quite a strange concept to get your head around, uh, but this phrase, fear of God, is used in church and in studies, and I used to associate the fear of God with the scary Old Testament gods, the God that would flood the earth, that would be angry with the leaders of Israel and Jerusalem and tear down cities and let people be in exile, but then associate the same God with the good parts, Jesus, who came to save our lives from sin and death. <coughs> So the Old Testament, scary, law-giving God. New Testament, our saving God. And that's not true at all. It's awful theology. But I've realized that fearing God is a good thing and can build us up in faith. Because our God, the creator, can be king of everything he's created. Including the most powerful elements in the world. Earth, winds, and fire. And no, not the American 70s funk band. Although, I was preparing this on the 21st of September. <laughs> I did that joke to Graham, it just went... So. so, who's ever been scared before? I'm sure we've all been scared. Being scared is when we would be in shrieking terror when something bad is about to happen. You might have experienced fear in watching a horror film. We were watching a film ages ago called After Earth with Will Smith and his son Jaden Smith in it. It's not a horror, but my brother, Joe, had a bowl of sweets in his hand. And it was a while ago, so he was younger at the time, but there was a jump scare. And he jumped out of his seat, and this bowl of sweets went flying all over himself, like something you'd see in the movies. But that's not true fear. True fear is something that the disciples experienced in Mark 4, from verse 35. It says, That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side, Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. And movies in the end aren't actually that scary. Ultimately, we know that if it gets too scary, there's a button to turn it off, and we can go and do something else. Usually the complete opposite to what we've just watched, just to make sure there's not a serial killing clown in the drains. But people that like scary movies like to be scared or like watching other people jumping when something scary happens. So for me, Joe throwing the bowl over his, of sweets over himself was hilarious. But we can turn the film off whenever we want. We know, that the film, we know that the fear in the film is being manufactured for our entertainment and we are in control of it. That isn't true fear. What's really scary is the wind. After the extreme high winds we had earlier this year with Storm Eunice. We saw trees blown down, fence panels across the roads. The Tesco sign was destroyed. The wind is scary. 
So he's drinking in front of 200 people. <laughs> when we were at New Day in 2019, there was a day of high winds, and it completely destroyed the church marquee. The winds lifted the marquee up and dropped on the campsite next to us, shattering loads of the poles. And I thank God no one was in the one-man tent that it landed on at the time. With the wind, what is truly terrifying is that you know you're in the mercy of something that is completely out of your control. You don't have a pause button to stop it. The power of the wind terrifies us because we are not in control of this thing. And that's exactly where the disciples are in this story. The writer describes it as a great windstorm arose, waves crashing over the side of the boat, waters filling the boat. They think they're going to die. They're face to face with their own death. They're screaming, teacher, wake up, we're drowning here. Meanwhile, Jesus is asleep. That's not what you want Jesus to be doing if he's in that situation with you. You want him to be reassuring you, like a flight attendant when you go through a patch of turbulence. It's going to be all right. It's just a pocket of pressure shaking you around. We'll be fine. But Jesus is asleep. He's tired. He's been teaching and healing people all day. He needs a rest. The disciples say, teacher, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And the answer to this question is obvious to anyone who knows Jesus. Of course he cares. And when he's woken up, he rebuked the wind and everything goes calm. There's something very breezy about the situation. He just wakes up and goes, shh. And the sea and the wind, which are capable of doing anything they want, except defy the order of their creator, goes flat. Waves and winds that would knock oil rigs off their moorings instantly subside and instantly go silent to the point where you could hear a pin drop in the water. And Jesus goes back to bed. The authority Jesus has in that moment is scary. What kind of power do you have to have to stop a storm with a shh? What are you going to say to that person that has that much power? This story is showing off the mighty power that Jesus has, and it causes the disciples to ask this open-mouthed question at the end. Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Do you notice the extraordinary thing that happens here? The disciples move from being afraid of the wind to being afraid of Jesus, king of the wind. The contrast here is it says they're afraid of the winds, but they're terrified of the king of the winds. The one who's able to silence the storm is far scarier than the storm itself. It turns into a horrified awe. They would have been singing, you are greater, Jesus. You are greater than it all. They realize that the most scary thing on the world isn't a patch on the one who made it and can control it. Their fear switches from one where they think they're going to die to an awe-inspiring fear of his power that he's going to use to save us because he is for us and not against us. The king of the winds is for us and not against us. And Jesus is also king of the earth. So I'm going to read two snippets from Jesus' death and resurrection and see if you can notice any time when the earth reacts to Jesus. So reading from Matthew 27, verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split apart, the tombs broke open. The body of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So that's Jesus' death, and then we go three days later into Matthew 28, reading from verse 1. After the Sabbath, at the dawn, 
of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Do you see how the earth responded? At Jesus' death, there was an earthquake. And at Jesus' resurrection, there was an earthquake. We didn't read this, but at the start of the chapter, at the start of the story, it says that at Jesus' death, the sky goes dark from noon until three. Creation responds to the death of the creator. It's interesting. When Jesus was born, it was bright at midnight. And when Jesus dies, it was dark at noon. The, uh, The world responds to the activity of the creator. The earth responds to the king of the earth. Now, I don't know how many times you've heard this story, but it's the most important story in history. It's the reason why we write 2022 at the end of our dates. But I can't think of many times it's been summarized as a tale of two earthquakes. But that's what's happened. And they must have been significant earthquakes for the writer to mention them twice in two chapters. And people came to believe in God through an earthquake. That makes for a great testimony, doesn't it? I started to believe in God because of an earthquake. But that's what's happened. It says the centurions saw the earthquake and exclaimed he was the son of God. It didn't say the centurions saw the love Jesus had for his enemies. Something about the shaking of the earth in response to the death of its king has made this hard, tough soldier who bangs nails into people's flesh for a living believe that Jesus was the son of God. And at the resurrection, when the angel came down, there was a violent earthquake. It's not just in the resurrection story when the earth responds to God coming down. You'll find it when you go back to Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus and God descends on the mountain and it shakes. And then in the vision of Isaiah in chapter 6, he sees the Lord seated high on a throne and lifted up and the temple shook at the sound of the angels. Again and again, when God comes down to earth, the earth shakes in response to the king of the earth. Shaking is what happens when something heavy and substantial lands in something light. When something weighty lands in something flighty. The flighty thing is moved out of the way of the weighty thing. And when God's glory lands into the earth, which is not so glorious as of God's, it causes the unglorious earth to be dispersed. If you were to drop a boulder in a pool or ever do a cannonball in a pool, the water would disperse and there'd be water splashed around the pool because it was forced out of the way by the weighty boulder or the weighty person. When the glory of God hurtles down to the earth full of sin and death, the glory of God destroys sin and death, dispersing it, causing an earthquake, causing a sin quake. And sin is not big enough to hold the weight of the glory of God. So when they collide at the death of Jesus, sin is destroyed. And then on Easter Sunday morning, you have Jesus colliding with death. Death represented by the stone saying, we will not let you out. Nobody ever comes back from the dead. And Jesus rises and walks out of the tomb to proclaim a new world. The Son of God has collided with death. And death is not strong enough to hold the glory of God. And death gets scattered everywhere. And that's what happens when the king of the earth collides with sin and death. 
So God's powerful. He rules over the wind and earth, and he rules over fire. So I'm going to read from Exodus 3 with Moses and the burning bush story. I'm going to try and explain how we can change fearing the powerful gods into faith. So reading from verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jephro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So pause there. God reveals himself as king of the fire. God's revealed himself using fire, not just the Lord ruling over fire, but choosing to reveal himself, he comes aflame. Now the fire image for God's, I think, is a stronger image than winds or earth. <clears throat> Throughout the Bible, when people encounter God, they see flames, burning light. So what is it about God's that makes people see fire? Why is that symbol so significant to us? Now, there's probably loads of reasons, and the Bible doesn't really have a clear explanation. But fire is bright. Who went to a bonfire last night? With a big bonfire, not just a small one that you have in the bottom of your garden, but one where people are burning sofas and pallets of wood, and the flames tower into the sky. There's something very attracting about it, but also something very frightening. You look at it, and you want to get close, because it's November 5th, it's a cold, freezing night and you want to get warm up, so you want to get as close to the fire as you can until you get too close and it starts burning you and you back off and everyone's trying to get to this right place. So fire is something that draws us but also sends us back because we can't get too close. And I think there's something of that in God being king of the fire. He draws us to an appropriate closeness. He says, come, come, I want to warm your life and set you alight and as you get closer you realize his burning, glorious, his holiness. And it's something that needs to be treated with respect and reverence and awe. And I want to get close and intimate, but I can't get too close and act as if I'm in control because I'm not. And that's why I think the fire imagery is used. And the fire in the burning bush story grabs Moses' attention, not just because it was on fire. Notice how it says the fire isn't consuming the bush. It says, Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. And there's something beautiful about that in the character of God. God's fiery and bright and life-giving, and his purpose is not to destroy. God's desire in coming to you in fire is not to destroy you, so the bush just disintegrates into nothing. His purpose is to come and set a light and reveal himself and be known, because he is holy and awesome, and it grabs Moses' attention. So I'm going to carry on the story from verse 3. It reads, So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. And that's what God wants for you. He doesn't want to destroy you into ash. His purpose for revealing himself to you is for you to come, take off your sandals, 
acknowledge his holiness, hear him call in your name, and approach him boldly, yet with suitable reverence and awe for the fact that he is king. So I'll pick up the story again from verse 7. It says, The Lord said, "I I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into the good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Isn't it great when God doesn't answer the question? Any time in scripture when God doesn't answer the question, he's doing it intentionally to teach us something. To highlight the kind of things that we think are important and the kind of things God thinks are important. God says, I want you, Moses, to go to the most powerful man in the world, confront him and say, you have to let my people go. And Moses says what any of us would say in that situation. Who am I that the king of Egypt will welcome me? How is that going to happen? And it's the question we all want to hear for validation. Who am I? Tell me how great I am. I want to be encouraged. Moses is scared. He wants validation. And God doesn't answer his question at all. Moses says, who am I? God says, I will be with you. Moses says, tell me about me. And God says, no, it doesn't matter who you are. I will be with you. And how many of us ask that question when we're sent into the world to serve him? We ask, who am I to do this? To pray for my neighbor, to speak to my co-workers about Jesus. And God says, that doesn't matter. I will be with you. The king of the wind, earth, and fire will be with you. And I want to finish today with the children's story, The Gruffalo because I think this dynamic is beautifully portrayed here. I'm trusting you know the story. If familiar, don't worry, I'll tell it now. So, a mouse took a stroll through the deep dark woods. A fox saw the mouse and the mouse looked good. Where are you going to, little brown mouse? Come and have lunch in my underground house. It's awfully kind of you, fox, but no, I'm going to have lunch with a gruffalo. A gruffalo? What's a gruffalo? A gruffalo, why didn't you know? He has terrible tusks and terrible claws and terrible teeth in his terrible jaws. Oh, where are you meeting him? Oh, over here by these rocks and his favorite food is roasted fox. Roasted fox, the fox said, I'm off. Goodbye, little mouse, and away he went. And the same thing happens when he meets the owl. Oh, owl ice cream, tweet, twoo. Goodbye, little mouse, and away he flew. And the snake, scrambled snake, it's time I hid. Goodbye, little mouse, and away he slid. Silly old snake, doesn't he know? There's no such thing as a gruffalo, but who is this creature with terrible claws and terrible teeth in his terrible jaws? His eyes are orange, his tongue is black, there's purple prickles all over his back. Oh no, it's the gruffalo. (coughs) My favourite food, the gruffalo said. (laughs) You'll taste good on a slice of bread. (coughs) Good, said the mouse. Don't call me good. I'm the scariest creature in all of these woods. Just walk behind me and soon you'll see everyone is afraid of me. 
Now, at this point in the story, children get the joke. When you're reading the story to your children and you do better voices than I can do, they get the irony. The mouse is going to walk back past the animals, which should be scary to a mouse, and they should eat him. But the mouse is going to approach the animals, and they're going to take one look at the mouse, and then one look at the gruffalo behind the mouse, and then run and hide. And the mouse hasn't got to worry about whether he is powerful enough to overcome the fox, the snake, and the owl, because the gruffalo is with him. And that's what happens. And they walk some more. And the gruffalo said, I hear a hiss. It's snake, said the mouse. Why, snake, hello. Snake took one look at the gruffalo. Oh, crumbs, goodbye, little mouse. And off he slid to his log pile house. And it keeps happening. And the children, when you're reading it, are shouting, it's not about the mouse. It's not about the mouse. It's about the person who's with the mouse. This giant, magnificent figure who's behind the mouse. And the mouse is going to do things on his own would be terrifying. But the mouse doesn't care. He's down here. He's feeling really smug. Because the one that's on his side is far more powerful than the people he's opposing. And all they have to do is take one look at the gruffalo, and they run away. And in that same spirit, Pharaoh is approached by Moses. And Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, oh, crumbs, and off he flees. And of course, they all end up drowning in the Red Sea. But it's not about the mouse. It's not about you. It's about who he is, the I am, the king of the fire, king of the earth, and the king of the winds, who is for you and not against you, and he will be with you. And if the band can start making their way back up. He will be with you. The same God that silences a storm with a shh is with you on a Monday morning when you first get into work. The same God that causes earthquakes when he chooses to come to earth is with you in conversations with neighbours and friends about God. The same God that reveals himself in fire is with you if you are struggling to find money for electricity or gas bills. He will be with you. Church, with the I am behind you, you're invincible, you're untouchable. So what situations this week do we need to realize and remember that this guy is behind you? Because me, I couldn't be standing here preaching for the first time without him behind me. He is with you.